This episode contains stories about police violence, death, and racism. You're listening to Unlawful Killing, Death, Resistance, and the Fight for Justice. A podcast by Inquest, the only charity fighting alongside families bereaved by deaths involving the state, including police, prison, and mental health services. I'm Lee Lawrence, advocate and son of Cherry Gross, who was shot by the Metropolitan Police, which sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. And I'm Lucy Brisbane from Inquest. In this series, we're diving into our 40-year history of campaigning, We'll be doing this through conversations with those at the centre of these stories. Episode 1, Policing, Part 1. And at the beginning of the first inquest, we picketed 100 police stations throughout England as a protest. That was the first inquest the night before it opened in October. We'll be spending the first two episodes talking all about policing. At Inquest, we keep track of all the deaths in police custody and following police contact in England and Wales. At the time of making this podcast, we've recorded almost 2,000 deaths of people at the hands of the police since 1990. In this episode, we're going to take you right back to one of the police killings that led to inquest being set up, Blair Peach. And what happened to my mum, Cherry Gross, which we'll also be looking at through the series. Right now, obviously, there's this massive focus on the Metropolitan Police and the issues around institutional racism, misogyny, homophobia. And there's this huge spotlight on policing in London and policing more generally around the UK. People are really interested. They're asking questions about defunding the police. We've had the Casey Review, which made massive criticisms. Obviously, that followed the the murder of Sarah Everard by a police officer. And all that came, I think really importantly, shortly after the killing in America of George Floyd, which was a huge cultural moment nationally and internationally but of course we're in this work we're doing it all the time we know the history goes back much longer than just back to 2020 absolutely as as you know lucy we've been having these conversations for a very long time in decades right when my mum was shot in 1985 when we had the brixton uprising and and the protests around what happened when it was um 1981, the Brixton uprisings then, and then we had the Lord Scarman report, which concluded indiscriminate use and disproportionate use of stop and search powers, which was the catalyst for the Brixton uprisings, which was targeted, you know, the sus laws were targeted towards young black males in particular in the community. So these conversations have begun on since then, and I feel it's only now it's been seen by a more the wider public and the wider community um, that the police can do wrong, right? And and it allowed for all of those stories from the past to be validated in the present. Yeah, so there's this big narrative shift happening all around us and this big focus 
on the issues that we've been talking about for a long time. I think a lot of what we hear is, oh, but this only really happens in America. And maybe people are starting to realise that it's actually on our doorstep. Especially after George Floyd. Because again, I think that was the first time that we had mass campaigning over here or and, over, and all over the world for something that happened in America. But then people, families of, of, of loved ones who have been murdered by the police or killed by the police saw that as an opportunity to remind everybody that this does happen over here too. And while we've got that kind of broad community interest at the same time we have a government who wants to increase policing powers you know the casey review concluded that the police were institutionally racist racist again but mark Rooley, uh the met police commissioner has refused to accept that and actually are we seeing the change that people are asking for While this episode focuses on the Metropolitan Police in London, this is a case study of broader institutional failures across British policing. Inquest has worked with families whose loved ones have died at the hands of the police all over the country, from West Midlands Police to Greater Manchester Police. They include Leon Patterson, Mikey Powell, Daylene Atkinson, Kelly Hartigan-Burns, Neil Saunders, Yasser Jakob, Sean Fitzgerald, Shane Bryant, Leon Briggs. Those are just a few of the recent deaths from around the country. This is a national problem. Policing in Britain is at crisis point. We want to take you right back to the death of Blair Peach. He was hit over the head and killed by a police officer in Southall in West London on the 23rd of April 1979. Blair, along with thousands of others, was there demonstrating against the National Front. His partner, Celia Stubbs, has been campaigning for justice ever since. So I went off to work with friends and he went with his friends, who one of them was a witness at the inquest, she saw him hit. They went earlier and we were to meet up, but we never met up because of the way the police cordoned off the town and even they were cordoned off in the Broadway. I arrived and I was on the east and in fact we were chased by police on horses through Southall Park for, for seemingly for no reason. We got separated, but I was another one and we decided just to go back to Hackney about um, quarter to eight. And that's what we did and that was about... Um, the time that, you know, Blair and others were forced up Beechcroft and and he was hit by a policeman on the corner of Beechcroft and Orchard Avenue. And um, they were trying to get hold of me and then they phoned my neighbour, David Ransom, just up the road and he came and told me. So I, I went to um, the hospital in Ealing where Blair was, but he was dead when I arrived. It was the middle of the night, but already um, Commander Cass, who was chosen as a person to do a report on Southall and Detective Inspector Helm, who was very senior. And they came to the house and took me out. I went, I took a friend with me, Sarah Hellman. She came with me um, to some police station where they interviewed me in the middle of the night in quite a sort of... Uh, Helm especially was very unpleasant. 
How does that make you feel listening to that, Lee? It reminds me of how much you never forget, you know? So just listening to that really brought me back to my own experience with my mum being shot and how I felt about that and how it never leaves you. And just to think that she's still campaigning up to today, again, is something I can relate to because you know that they didn't deserve to die in the way that they did. And they're not here to be a voice for themselves, so you have to be that voice for them. Yeah, and I think with Celia and with Blair's story, at that time, it was another big moment where people became engaged in challenging these issues. And there was a massive response in terms of the the protest and the community around Blair Peach, like in that response to National Front. They also rose up in response to his death. And I know that's similar to what happened after your mum was shot. And the, the other thing I was thinking about, to think that they were out campaigning against the National Front and then you end up getting killed as a result of that. You know, so I think that's like almost like a double whammy, really. The way it's always been framed in the past around protests is that, you know, these are just rebellious people who just want to take to the streets and disrupt. But really, rather than seeing them as hooligans, we should see them as heroes because it takes a lot for people to actually stand up against the system. And... Although when my mum was shot, I was too young to be out there protesting. But what I will say is that we took great comfort from knowing that there were people out there who cared about something that happened to us. And at the beginning of the first inquest, we pick, this was organised by the Friends, we picketed 100 police stations throughout England as a protest, that was the first inquest, the night before it opened in October. So, you know, there was... And the marches, I mean, the week after Blair died, there was a massive demonstration from Southall. And then there was a massive demonstration on 23rd of April 1980, a week before the inquest started, the second inquest started. When Celia's referring to the Friends, she's speaking about the Friends of Blair Peach Committee, and that was a group of activists who came together to demand justice for Blair. You know the slogan, no justice, no peace. Um, you know, loved ones are always seeking justice um, for the loved ones who have been killed at the hands of the police. And when you strip down the word justice, it means fairness. And the system that you're up against is not fair. So you have no choice. You either sit down and take it or you have to fight back. And campaigns are a way of fighting back against an unfair system. Exactly. Which is why four other family-led campaigns, Matthew O'Hara, Jimmy Kelly, Little Towers and Richard Cartoon Campbell, set up in the late 70s and early 80s, got together to form Inquest, the charity that we are today. And it's strange to think that when my mum was shot in 1985, when I was just 11 years old, that four years before that inquest had set up and we had no idea until 2011 when my mum actually passes and then we come into contact with the inquest. 
That brings us back to the investigations that took place after Blair's death, when in the immediate aftermath, an internal investigation was triggered. And at that time, that was carried out by Commander Cass from the Complaints Investigation Bureau, which has gone through so many iterations now and is currently called the Independent Office for Police Conduct, or IOPC, who investigate deaths in police custody and contact. Director of Public Prosecutions, he decided there will be no prosecution of any police officer in connection with the death. And in fact, even the Attorney General expressed surprise. And now that we know, Cass in his report said that Blair, it seems quite clear that Blair was killed by a police officer. And then um, 28th of April, this second inquest was convened. And everyone knows at the end of May, we got the verdict of misadventure. But um, the way the inquest was conducted, a lot of, lot of it's been written about that, how the shocking way the civilians um, were treated. I mean, there were 11 eyewitnesses and 10 of them were, were Asians and they were shockingly treated. And then the sort of almost sycophantic, subservient way he he spoke to the officers who were called, and just all of them absolutely denied where they were, when they were, and in which who they travelled with, in which van, because they were so clearly had discussed before. None of them wanted to uh, involve anybody. In, in a situation which might be considered suspicious. So, I mean, just complete lack of memory. And of course, he'd read the Cass report through this, as had um, the police council had had it, and also um, was the jury who'd, who'd had to make the final decision. They couldn't see the Cass report. Our solicitor, our barrister couldn't see the Cass report, and neither could the ANL barrister. The Cass report was an investigation into the events that surrounded Blair's death, and the extensive report was kept from the family for more than 30 years. Eventually, it revealed that Blair was almost certainly killed by a police officer from the elite riot squad known as the Special Patrol Group, or the SPG. Yeah, it's shocking when people learn this, people are shocked, but it's something that we highlight a lot, that to this day, thousands of deaths later, there's still only been one successful prosecution of a police officer involved in a death, and that's despite all the evidence of neglect and violence. Celia had to wait over 30 years for the report into Blair's death to be released, even though, as she explains, the investigation was conducted not that long after he died, and the Metropolitan Police only made it public in 2010. Too often at inquest, we still see police forces and the state more broadly evading accountability by just covering up their own investigations and the evidence. We went through a very similar process when my mum was shot back in 1985. It took us 29 years to have what happened to my mum recognised for what it was, which was failings by the Metropolitan Police, a number of failings, serious failings. And... Um, but the process to get to that point, the fight to get to that point was gruelling. And she she didn't die in 1985. She died years later. So you had the initial response to her being shot. And then later you had all these post-death processes that were triggered. That's right. So um, if I was to just take you back to 
what happened. In 1985, on the 28th of September, it was a Saturday morning, 7am. Um, I heard a noise. I opened my eyes as I was asleep in my mum's room in her bed and I saw my mum walking towards the door to investigate what the noise was. Then I laid down, rest assured, whatever it was, mum was taking care of it. And then I heard another noise with a loud bang. And this time I jumped up and I just saw my mum lying on the floor and a man standing over her with a gun in his hand, shouting at her. And I just heard her say back in a really faint voice, I can't breathe. I can't feel my legs and I think I'm going to die. And just hearing her say that just freaked me out. I started screaming and shouting, what have you done to my mum? What have you done to my mum? And then this man turns around and points his gun towards me and said, someone better shut this effing kid up. And I was just, I froze. And it was only in that moment that I realised this was a police officer. Um, my dad was in the room trying to calm me down and I saw the fear in his face and I thought, wow, my dad's scared. This must be serious because he used to be in the army back in the day. Um, we got ushered out of the bedroom into the living room and there was about 30 officers, dogs, guns. It felt like someone had shook my house upside down. And moments after, my mum was rushed to the hospital. And all we were concerned about was, you know, is my mum going to be all right? Is she going to live? And we couldn't get any answers. And there was a news bulletin that said she had passed and then people had started to gather outside our house, demanding to know why this woman was shot in front of their children and we weren't getting any answers. So they marched from our house in Normandy Road in Brixton to Brixton Police Station, again, demanding to know what happened, why this woman was shot in front of her children. And um, still no answers, that turned into frustration, that frustration turned into anger, and that anger turned into violence, and that was the catalyst for the 1985 Brixton uprisings, famously known as riots, but we we claimed the word as uprisings because that's what it was. But you found out later she didn't actually die in that moment? Yes. Luckily, she survived. And I remember going to see my mum days later in hospital and the doctor coming into the room and explaining that as a result of being shot in her shoulder, the bullet travelled and hit her spine and her lung and came out through her hip. Um, she was now going to be permanently paralysed and fragments of the bullet was lodged in her spine and they couldn't remove it for fear of further damage. So hearing that was devastating. You know, and I had to make a commitment to my 11-year-old self that I was now going to have to look after my mum and no longer allow my mum to look after me. God, you were 11. That is so young. And you did look after her for the rest of her life. And then later when she died, you found out that the gun and the shooting was the cause of her death. How many years later? 26 years later. So the officer shot my mum. There was a criminal trial. He got acquitted. So there was no justice. We had to just suck that up. And then she passed in 2011 and the doctor linked her death to the shooting. And that's how there was an inquest into my mum's death something that we never thought could ever happen. We, wasn't, we didn't even know what an inquest was. 
at the time. And, um, but I just remember making a commitment to myself that whatever this is, I'm going to pour everything into this process to try and have what happened to my mum acknowledged for what it was. And in a later episode, we're going to go into a bit more detail about what an inquest is and what that entails. To finish, we want to leave you with a clip of Celia talking about Blair and who he really was. He was very aware of what you could have said in those days, the haves and the have-nots. I think there was more poverty in the 70s in boroughs like Newham and Tower Hamlets and Hackney and south of the river. And um, where his specialism was reading, he always thought the importance of reading above all else for everyone. And he used to organise um, uh, summer schools, which he organised himself. They weren't organised in those days where children came to do reading, but also he took them out and we did all sorts of nice things with them. And he once, at the beginning, when we knew each other, I lived in Portsmouth. He brought 12 children down with just another teacher. They just brought them in their two cars to stay for a week in Portsmouth. And it was quite amazing, you know, that experience for them. But he did things like that. And he he really um, visited homes. He was, you know, he was an amazing person in that level and he was a sort of true socialist and a believer in justice and equality. In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Prosper Kaba about his fight for justice one year on from the fatal shooting of his son, Chris Kaba, and asking what connects these deaths. And looking at how our communities respond and how the past empowers the present. One day they tell you that your son is not there and police come to your house. They say that the police killed your son. We know that this is a really difficult episode. If you've been affected by any of the themes that have come up, please go to the links in the episode notes. If you think other people would like Unlawful Killing, then please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and feedback really help others discover the show. If you have a story to share, get in touch via communications at inquest.org.uk or on social media. We'd also like to pay tribute to the thousands of bereaved families who have worked alongside Inquest. Thank you to each and every one of you who have created powerful legacies for your loved ones and contributed to important changes which protect all of us. Unlawful Killing is made in partnership with Inquest and Aunt Nell, presented by me, Lucy Brisbane, and Lee Lawrence, produced by Leila Hagman and Naomi Oppenheim. Consultant producers Tash Walker and Adam Smith. The music in this podcast is by Dave Okumu. This podcast is part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're grateful that this podcast series is supported by Hodge, Jones & Allen, a key law firm in the fight for what's right. Their lawyers help people right wrongs, fight injustice and defend people's rights.
Inquest have worked with Hodge, Jones and Allen on countless cases from the Marchioness disaster of 1989 to the ongoing Essex Mental Health Inquiry. Thanks also to the students from the Centre for Social Justice Research at the University of Westminster who helped with the research for the podcast. And finally, we'd like to thank everyone who's participated in our oral history project with a special thanks to Celia Stubbs who featured in this episode.